Hello, this is Dr. Michael Beasley, and this is Tacky Beats, where we expand on topics from the heart failure beat and quick interviews with interesting people. Well, hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us on another episode of Tacky Beats. Today, we're going to take a dive into a recently published expert consensus statement. We're going to look at the HFSA's expert consensus statement on the medical management of patients on durable mechanical circulatory support. And to help us dive into this paper, we have one of the co-authors of the paper, Dr. Jennifer Cowger. I'm very happy to welcome her today. Dr. Cowger is an advanced heart failure specialist at Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan. She is a section head of advanced heart failure, transplant, and mechanical circulatory support, and is also an active member of the cardiogenic shock, structural heart, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, amyloid, and sarcoid programs. She works closely with STS Intermax Registry and is proud to be on the Advocacy Council for the Heart Failure Society of America. So, Dr. Calger, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Really excited to talk about this paper with you. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me here, Dr. Beasley. And I am equally excited to discuss medical management of the patient on LVAD therapy. Wonderful. Well, you know, just to start off, you know, why did you and your writing team think that such a document was necessary and that it was important to put something like this out for your fellow heart failure professionals? You know, the field of MCS survival in the long term is just lengthening and lengthening with each successive iteration of devices. And we're really at the point in our field where we've moved beyond looking at operative survival, right? Now we're looking at long-term survival for patients who are or and especially not candidates for transplant. So, you know, with all the medications that are out there, GDMT for heart failure, The discussion it can be and should be is how do we use medications and management of patients potentially to improve their long-term survival on LVAD? What data do we have? Where are we lacking data where we need clinical trials to support us? And really, that was the impetus of writing this paper today. You know, the paper covered such a wide breadth of topics, you know, starting off with guideline-directed medical therapy, looking at some of the other things that we commonly know we have to take into account with durable MCS, like afterload reduction, supporting the right ventricle, looking at anticoagulation for these patients. What were some of the highlights, in your opinion, that you thought really should be take-home messages that readers should be mindful of when they're reviewing the paper? I think the first is guideline-directed medical therapy of heart failure. And I think when I look at the VAD patient, that is a patient that has a VAD that also has heart failure. So while you know, we have not had randomized controlled trials of typical GDMT agents and patients on VAD support, at the end of the day, they still have heart failure. They still have aberrancies of the renin-angiotensin system. Many of them still have diabetes, renal insufficiency, we really should be able to extrapolate medications that are known to improve outcomes in the non-bad patients to bad patients. We do have some data looking at Intermax and other cohorts showing that patients who are treated with guideline-directed medical therapy have better survival in the long term. That includes a four-year survival of 56% versus 44% on second-generation support. If you get them on GDMT, they even had better quality of life. So in my mind, there's really no reason why we shouldn't attempt to get all of our good GDMT on board these patients. 
The other component I think that was interesting is understanding the patient that you're treating and treating blood pressure in relation to the device of support. Each LVAD device has its own HQ curve or pressure head curve and how the pump responds to preload and afterload. Some of the prior generation pumps had associated thrombosis risks that not surprisingly had increased stroke risks. Some of that I think truly was inherent to the pumps alone, in situ thrombosis, poor washing of rotors, stators, et cetera. But we saw from the endurance and endurance supplemental that perhaps good blood pressure control led to reduced stroke risk in patients, at least on HVAD centrifugal flow support. But what we didn't realize from that trial is that the mean blood pressure in patients who stroked was like 81 millimeters of mercury, right? The map. It wasn't 100. It wasn't 110. So when you look back at that data, I, I think it's important to think about the other risk factors for stroke, age, prior history of AFib, device type, and its own inherent risk for thrombosis. So if you look at the HeartMate 3 data to date, looking at blood pressure, there hasn't been a tight correlation with a definitive map of 90 or greater in stroke. But rather, because we were so ingrained to tight blood pressure control, some of us have titrated up blood pressures, and now we're left with that dizzy patient, what I call the cruise ship effect, where they stand up and they just feel wobbly. I think what we've learned from that and understanding the HQ curve of the HeartMate 3 is if you have a patient, especially if they're preload dry, preload low, and you drop their MAP, down to 80 to 90, they're more likely to be dizzy. So if you want to let their maps run higher to reduce the low flow issue, you turn up the pump speed rather than cranking up their antihypertensives. And that is something that's built into the HQ curve. It's supported by the engineers that have designed the pump. And I think is a key take home point from the document. Does that mean that we ignore hypertension? No, just like any other patient. You don't want long-standing hypertension. But I think this very, very tight desire of blood pressure control, at least on maglev support, is probably not as necessary. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that definitely is going to change my personal practice. I know that I have, over the years, been a little bit more aggressive in trying to reduce the mean arterial pressure and not only for stroke risk, but also trying to avoid low flow, I guess, you know, from having a significantly elevated mean arterial pressure. But yeah, considering what you've published here, not needing to achieve such quite a low mean arterial pressure would be definitely something I'm going to take away from this and, and implement in my own practice. And pivoting back to the first point that you made there in regards to making sure that we still consider these patients as having heart failure and continuing to prescribe guideline-directed medical therapies like we would for our other dilated cardiomyopathy patients. Because the neurohormonal system is still upregulated, and we know that sometimes we're not really getting that as much cardiac output out that the body still you know, would truly need, as far as I can understand. And so having that neurohormonal blockade still is going to be effective. And as you mentioned, helping improve quality of life and helping uh, reduce mortality and extend life. So great takeaway points. Another common situation that you know see very frequently in my personal practice is balancing the risk of GI bleeds with the need for antithrombotic and antiplatelet therapies. 
And it seems like people have different strategies about how to handle this and in regards to what do you do with the aspirin? How do you modify your target INR, you know, with the warfarin dosing? And you and your co-authors discussed this as well in the paper. And I wanted to see if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, where this came from, understandably, that full disclosure, data-free zone, right? We don't have randomized trials on this, but part of the documents are really to try to come to somewhat of a consensus of what we do. And, you know, we've learned a lot from the action group, the pediatric action, where they acknowledge we do not have randomized controlled trials to do this, but let's all try to do X, Y, and Z and see if we reduce outcomes, right? So that's kind of, you know, the basis of where we were coming from with this, with the full asterisk of, okay, data-free zone, folks. So what we did was we got the group on the call and said, okay, patient comes in with one GI bleed versus patient that comes in with recurrent GI bleeds. What are you normally doing? And, you know, it actually wasn't that different amongst the group in terms of they come in, they're GI bleeding, we let their INR trickle down, they get a scope. Most of them are put back on their anticoagulation and antiplatelet and go home. It's the recurrent bleeds that there were different thresholds for some of the authors would just stop aspirin at that point. Some stop aspirin and Coumadin when the bleed stopped, put them back on and sent them out. And others would have various interventions, octreotide, et cetera. And as a group, I think we, we came up with the thought that, you know, if you're coming in on a maglev device, okay, so this doesn't apply necessarily to an axial flow and absolutely to hydrodynamic flow device that has a, a high risk of stroke. If you're on a maglev device, maybe it is reasonable with recurrent bleeds to send them without aspirin, whether that's for 30 or 90 days, just to kind of let the GI process heal, get them dried up then resuming it at the discretion of what you think that patient's risk is. And that may be a patient that stays off of aspirin. And then if they continue to come in with bleeding, then you have that shared decision-making discussion, which I actually just had an hour ago with my patient, of, you know, do we stop this? You know, you've been in the hospital four times with the GI bleed. You've never had a stroke. We don't have AFib. What are the risks and benefits of stopping anticoagulation at that point? And I think these are all reasonable discussions to have with patients with full acknowledgement that the data isn't there. And I think the group felt really comfortable saying that after recurrent GI bleeds, we don't have data. But if you have a patient that doesn't have recurrent strokes, that may be your best option at that moment. Yeah. I guess as a final question that I have for you is that so much more, and unfortunately, we, you know, I wish we had time to kind of cover every detail that was in the document, but I guess I'd encourage our listenership to check out the document themselves uh, in the Journal of Cardiac Failure and read it. And it really was such a an easy document to read. Sometimes these expert consensus statements and guideline documents take a bit of effort to get through all the data, but this was a very nicely written and was easy to get from front to back. And I really would encourage our listeners to give it a look. But lastly, you know, there's a lot of things that we haven't talked about so far. And just some of the things that you also cover are perioperative management. You look at RV failure, you look at driveline infections. 
you know, in any of these other categories that we haven't had a chance to, to discuss, is there anything that pops out, again, as a big take-home point that you'd want to make sure our listeners are aware of from those areas? Yeah, I think that, you know, again, we're looking at patients now for long-term support. We're looking at over 60% of patients hopefully alive at five years, right? At least 58% on the M3 trial. So the thought of the right ventricle and the pathology associated with RV dysfunction is still there. Some patients are not optimally supported. So I think the data is going to come out here shortly using PA sensor measurement in VAD patients at a minimum, either a PA sensor or regular heart caths to make sure that those patients that may look fine are truly fine so that we are appropriately offloading that ventricle to reduce RV dysfunction because we don't have a treatment for it. To win in the long-term support game, we need to make sure that we're keeping those pulmonary pressures down, the left atrial pressures down. So I think that's the key is to really don't forget your patients, even if they're doing well, to make sure they're hemodynamically supported. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Dr. Calgar, for taking the time to talk with us today here on Heart Failure Beat, Tacky Beats. Again, for everybody out there, the document in the Journal of Cardiac Failure is the HFSA Expert Consensus Statement on the Medical Management of Patients on Durable Mechanical Circulatory Support. So I hope everybody gives it a nice look. Thanks again, and I hope you have a great uh, rest of your day and look forward to seeing you in person. Thank you on behalf of my co-authors as well. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Tacky Beats. We'll catch you next time on the Heart Failure Beat. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.